The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. Jones, Dr. Jones, I'll wake up, please. Are there already? Oh, good. No. No. Huh? No one's flying the plane. They're all gone. You know how to fly, don't you? No. Do you? Oh, no. How hard oh, can it God. be? I'm going to faint. Altimeter. Okay. Airspeed. Uh, okay. Fuel. 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 I think we got a big problem. Welcome to this Patreon-exclusive episode of How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you all so much for all of your support. Welcome to part two of my look at the Indiana Jones franchise. Now, I got a lot of great feedback on that first episode, so I appreciate each and every one of you that took the time to let me know that you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a quintessential action-adventure film. It's fun, full of excitement, and never takes itself too serious. Now, I wish I could say the same for the second Indiana Jones film, a movie that was a sharp departure from the first film. By that I mean, sure, it has a little bit of humor here and there, but the subject matter, the plot, if you will, was very dark, and its tone, well, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Temple of Doom, but there's a scene where a man pulls another man's heart out of his chest before lowering him into some lava. Now, I remember seeing this scene vividly as a child, and rewatching Temple of Doom this past weekend, I can tell you that that particular scene is still just as brutal to watch now as it was for a seven-year-old back then. And trust me, a lot of seven-year-olds saw that movie in 1984 when it was released. But I'll get back to that issue a little later on. Now, 
don't take what I'm saying at the beginning of this episode as a declaration of me not liking the movie. To the contrary, I think Temple of Doom is another very well-made film in the Indiana Jones franchise. It has some fantastic action sequences. But I want to know a little bit more about how we got to this particularly, you know, very dark tone. Let's do a quick recap and see where we left off. Made on an $18 million budget, Raiders of the Lost Ark, released in 1981, took in close to $400 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing film of 1981 and further cemented the fact that both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood. Now, the period between 1981 and 1984 for Lucas and in particular Spielberg were amongst the most fast paced and furious few years in their professional careers. In 1981, the same year that Raiders was released in theaters, Steven Spielberg, along with his friends Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, founded Amblin Entertainment, a production studio named after Spielberg's short film of the same name that helped him break into the industry. Amblin Entertainment's first project was called Continental Divide, written by Lawrence Kasdan. Yes, the same man that wrote Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. The film is notable for not only being Amblin's first production, but also one of the last films that John Belushi would star in. Now, unfortunately, Continental Divide did not do huge numbers at the box office, taking in only about 15 million, just breaking even. However, Amblin's next project would do a fair bit better. 1982 would see Steven Spielberg direct his next film about an extraterrestrial being stranded on Earth. E.T., which was produced by Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy on a budget of $10.5 million, was not only the highest-grossing film of 1982, but became one of the highest-grossing films of all time, taking in close to $800 million worldwide. E.T. would also be the highest-grossing film of Spielberg's career to that point. But there was also something very unique about the timing of the release of E.T. The film was released June 11, 1982. And if you were a huge Spielberg fan back in 1982, then this would have been exactly one week after the release of another Spielberg production. You see, on June 4, 1982, the film Poltergeist was released. I say this was a Steven Spielberg production because, you see, Texas Chainsaw director Toby Hooper was technically the director of Poltergeist, and I do mean technically. You see, Poltergeist was Steven Spielberg's baby, and he had every intention of being the director on that film. However, there was a clause in the contract with Universal Pictures, the studio that was distributing E.T., that stated that Steven Spielberg could not take on any other directing assignments while he was making E.T. However, ask anyone who spent any time on the set of Poltergeist, and they will tell you that Steven Spielberg controlled every aspect of that film being made, from script rewrites to full storyboards, and even spending almost every day in the editing room. For Toby Hooper's part, he was just happy to have a job and apparently was not a person who would argue if Spielberg wanted a change made to a particular scene that was being filmed. Unfortunately, enough people talked about this on-set experience that the Directors Guild of America launched a formal investigation into the production of Poltergeist. If you've listened to the Business of Film episode 2017 that I did last week with guest Phil Joano, then you will know that the Directors Guild of America does not fuck around when it comes to protecting their directors. Once a director signs on for a project, the studio has somewhere between 5 to 10 days to replace the director, otherwise he is locked in. So when word got out that Spielberg was the de facto director of Poltergeist, 
things got a little dicey. Now, ultimately, the DGA's investigation really turned up nothing as Toby Hooper was adamant that he was always the director of the film. Poltergeist had another setback. When the film was submitted to the Motion Picture Association of America for its rating, it was slapped with an R rating. You see, this is 1982, and the rating system was as follows. G, P, G, R, and X. What's missing? You're correct. PG-13. In 1982, that rating system didn't exist. And that's going to play more into our story as we go on. I'm not sure how many directors have the kind of pull that Steven Spielberg has, even in 1982, but he was able to successfully appeal the rating and have Poltergeist rated PG without making a single edit to the film. I, of course, make the argument that the movie is way above a PG rating, but understanding that there was no PG-13 rating in 1982, and we're talking about Steven Spielberg, who by that point was quickly becoming the most powerful man in Hollywood. He could get a lot accomplished. 1983 would see Steven Spielberg direct a segment for the anthology movie The Twilight Zone. Now, that movie became infamous not because of anything that Spielberg did, but because of the segment that director John Landis did called Time Out, in which actor Vic Morrow and two child actors were killed when a helicopter stunt went wrong. Now, I have an entire episode planned on the making of Twilight Zone, so I'll get back to that one a little ways down the road. For Amblin Entertainment's next project, Spielberg signed on as producer for a film called Gremlins, with Joe Dante attached to direct. With so much going on in Spielberg's professional career, he was surprised when his good friend George Lucas called him and said that he thought the time was right to bring back Indiana Jones. After Raiders of the Lost Ark was released, Lucas went headfirst into pre-production for the third and what he claimed would be the final Star Wars film, Return of the Jedi. Once again, Lawrence Kasdan was brought on to help write the screenplay. A film as epic as a Star Wars movie took up the majority of Lucas's time between 81 and 82 and very early 83. And just like Spielberg was the de facto director on Poltergeist, even though Richard Marquardt was the director of Return of the Jedi, ask anybody who was there and they'll tell you that Lucas was on the set every day. It wasn't until the release of Return of the Jedi in May 83 that George Lucas was ready to really start talking Indiana Jones again. Now, Lucas had a flurry of ideas about what to do with the second film. The first decision that he made was to make Indiana Jones and the Temple of Death, that's what they were calling it, a prequel. Now, the reason why it was a prequel was simple. He just didn't want to have Nazis be the bad guys once again. Now, Lucas had all kinds of ideas, crazy ideas, including Indiana Jones riding a motorcycle on the Great Wall of China. That idea was nixed when the Chinese government refused to let them film there. Another idea would be Indiana Jones discovering the lost world full of dinosaurs, something that we all know Spielberg would look into a little bit more in the 1990s. Now, ultimately, George Lucas came up with the concept of a religious cult in India devoted to child slavery and human sacrifice. When Lucas took the ideas to Lawrence Kasdan, who had penned the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Kasdan wanted no part of this. I mean, he thought this was a horribly mean idea and didn't think that there was anything fun about the idea of child slavery in an Indiana Jones film. The decision for Lawrence Kasdan not to be involved in this particular film would signify the end of the working relationship between George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan also had some very interesting comments about the finished product of Temple of Doom, and I'll get to that one a little later on. Now, Lucas had stated that he wanted the second Indiana Jones film to be darker in its tone, a la Empire Strikes Back. So with Lawrence Kasdan out, Lucas had to find new screenwriters to work on his treatment. Enter in William Hike and Gloria Katz. Now, these two screenwriters had worked with Lucas in developing the script 
for American graffiti. The two were hired because they had an extensive knowledge of Indian culture. This is where the film was to take place. Now, like it was done with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, George Lucas recorded hours and hours of conversation that he had with the two writers and then had those conversations transcribed into almost a 500-page book they could use to help turn out a working script. Now, one thing I didn't really talk about in the first episode was that the producer of Raiders of the Lost Ark was Frank Marshall, the husband of Kathleen Kennedy and a good friend of Steven Spielberg. Like I mentioned, Marshall, Kennedy, and Spielberg founded Amblin Entertainment, and right around the time they were trying to get the second Indiana Jones film off the ground, Amblin was committed to making Gremlins, thus making Frank Marshall unavailable to come on board as producer of the new Indiana Jones film. With Spielberg already having some success as a producer, naturally one would think, hey, you know, Spielberg, you were director and producer on E.T., why don't you take over the producing duties? However, Spielberg's schedule was so chock full of projects that it would have just been unimaginable for him. This is where the real unsung hero of the second Indiana Jones films comes into play. His name is Robert Watts. If that name is not familiar to you, that's okay. He's been a part of some of the biggest films of the past 50 years. Now, he's always had some type of behind-the-scenes role, either as an associate producer or a production assistant. He worked on everything from two James Bond films, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, to Stanley Kubrick's 2001. He worked on the Paul Newman, Dustin Hoffman film Papillon, and in the mid-70s was introduced to George Lucas. The two became good friends, and Lucas hired him to be associate producer on the first Star Wars film. Now, after the mammoth success of the first Star Wars film, that started a working relationship between Watts and Lucas that would last for the better part of the next 15 years. Watts would serve as associate producer on Empire Strikes Back and then co-producer on Return of the Jedi. Now, he also served as associate producer on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and when the time came to find a producer for Indiana Jones, in the Temple of Death. Again, this is what they were calling it. Robert Watts was given his first solo producing credit. Now, I don't think enough can be said about the impact that Robert Watts had putting Indiana Jones and the Temple of Death together. He had some extreme challenges that he had to tackle. Not only was the production given a very small window by big Hollywood standards to get the film made, but a major challenge would present itself, one that may have resulted in the film being put on an indefinite hiatus. See, the majority of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom takes place in India, and the two screenwriters had warned George Lucas that given all they know about India's culture, they may not be a fan of this script. They even went so far as to ask Lucas if he thought he might have a problem getting permission to film in India, to which Lucas jokingly replied, Are you kidding me? It's me and Spielberg. How could they say no? Well, the Indian government did say no. Well, not technically no. They, they laid out a list of demands in order for them to give permission to film in India. That included immediate changes to the script. And this one I found incredibly interesting. The Indian government also demanded that they have final cut of the film in India. Meaning that when the movie was done, the government of India would be able to edit the film however they saw fit before they would show it in theaters in India. These demands, of course, were not met, and Robert Watts scrambled to find a suitable location. The decision was made to film in Sri Lanka. The move to Sri Lanka would add almost $8 million to the prospective budget due to a completely different currency exchange, different from what they had planned if they were going to shoot in India. Now, Sri Lanka was used for most of the outside shots, but once the movie gets going, once it goes subterranean, once the movie gets to the, quote, 
Temple of Doom, all of that was filmed on a soundstage in England. Some 80% of the film was shot at L Street Studios, just like the previous Indiana Jones. The second Indiana Jones film was unique in that almost all of the crew that had worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark returned. There were a couple of new faces, one being, of course, Kate Capshaw. She had auditioned for the lead role of Willie Scott, the spoiled American singer who was introduced in the opening Shanghai scene. Prior to Indiana Jones, she had had a few bit parts in a couple soap operas and a couple smaller films. You never told me you spoke my language, Dr. Jones. Only on special occasions. So, it is true. You found Nuhachi. You know I did. Last night, one of your boys tried to get Nuhachi without paying for him. You have insulted my son. No, you've insulted me. I spared his life. Aren't you going to introduce us? This is Willie Scott. This is Indiana Jones, famous archaeologist. Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies. Mommies. Dr. Jones found Nuachi for me. And he's going to deliver him now. Say, who is this Nuachi? Put the gun away, Sonny. I suggest you give me what you owe me, or anything goes. <laughs> oh. Just drink up the 
Jason looks fast. I've got chills. Good service here. That's not a waiter. Wuhan's an old friend. Game's not over, Lao. Antidote. Now, to say that Capshaw and Spielberg hit it off well on the set of Temple of Doom would be putting it mildly. The two started a relationship shortly after the production ended and were married in 1991, and they have been together ever since and have six children together. For the role of Short Round, Indy's pint-sized sidekick, an open casting call was put out to elementary schools in the greater Los Angeles area to find a young Asian actor. Jonathan Key Kwan went to the audition with his brother. Kwan had no intentions of auditioning for the role. He was just there to offer moral support for his brother, who was auditioning. Now, when Kwan was spotted by a casting director and brought before Steven Spielberg, Spielberg immediately liked this young man's personality. And it just so happened that Harrison Ford was also in the same building during these auditions, and Spielberg arranged an impromptu meeting of the two. During this audition, Kwan and Harrison Ford pretended to play a game of poker, in which Kwan would find out that Ford was cheating. Spielberg wanted to see Kwan's reactions, And once he did, he offered him the role on the spot. Now, it should be noted that some 6,000 people auditioned for that role. What do you got? Two sixes. Uh Uh-huh, I have three aces. Uh I win. Two more games. I have all your money. Ha, ha, ha. It's poker, shorty. Anything can happen. The biggest trouble with her is the noise. Hey, you cheat, Dr. Jones. You cheat. You the full car. Dragging us off to this deserted palace. Fortune and glory. Fortune and glory. This pictograph represents Sankara. Gentle, gentle. This is hundreds of years old. Is that some kind of writing? Yeah, it's Sanskrit. Cut it out. It's part of the legend of Sankara. He climbs Mount Kalisa where he meets Shiva, the Hindu god. That's Shiva, and what's he handing the priest? Rocks. Told him to go forth and combat evil. And to help him, he gave him five sacred stones with magical properties. Magic rocks. My grandpa was a magician. He spent his entire life with a rabbit in his pocket and pigeons up his sleeves. He made a lot of children happy and died a very poor man. Magic rocks. Fortune and glory. Sweet dreams, Dr. Jones. Where are you going? 
I'd sleep closer if I were you. For safety's sake. Dr. Jones, I'd be safer sleeping with a snake. <laughs> I said, cut it out! <laughs> I hate that elephant. Now, it also needs to be noted that Steven Spielberg did want to bring Karen Allen back. However, it was Lucas who convinced Spielberg that Indiana Jones should have a different female lead for each subsequent film. Of course, that would change with the fourth film, but of course, we'll get to that in a later episode. Now, remember when I told you how Raiders of the Lost Ark came in under budget and weeks ahead of schedule? Spielberg had made a promise to Lucas that he could deliver a film on budget and on time and make good on that promise. This wasn't exactly the case for Temple of Doom. See, there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Lucas was going through the middle of a bitter divorce, and Spielberg had also just broken up with his longtime girlfriend. Now, many out there will attribute what was going on with both of their personal lives as being major influences in the film having such a dark tone. Now, speaking of that tone, Lucas has gone on record saying that although he wanted to have a darker tone, I'm going to stop saying tone, I promise, even he'll admit that things got a lot darker than he originally planned. I pray to Shiva, let me die, but I do not. Now, now the evil of Kali take me. How? They will make me drink the blood of the Kali. Then I'll fall into the black sleep of the Kali Ma. What is that? We become like them. We'll be alive, but like a nightmare. You drink blood, you not wake up from nightmare. You were caught trying to steal the Shankara stones. There were five stones in the beginning. Over the centuries, they were dispersed by wars, sold off by thieves like you. Thieves like me, huh? Still missing, too. A century ago, when the British raided this temple and butchered my people, a loyal priest hit the last two stones down here in the catacombs. So that's what you've got these slaves digging for, huh? They're innocent children. They dig for the gems to support our cause. They also search for the last two stones. Soon we will have all the five Shankara stones. And the thuggies will be all powerful. What a vivid imagination. (laughs) You don't believe me? You will, Dr. Jones. You will become a true believer. Spielberg had also said that he was somewhat uncomfortable with many of the scenes that he was asked to direct. Now, his solution for this was to add as much humor as possible to any particular scene and attempt to lighten things up. Now, ultimately, Spielberg was able to deliver Temple of Doom on budget and on schedule, not ahead of schedule, not under budget, 
but on time. But he was only able to do this by sacrificing several key set pieces from the film, including a spectacular aerial dogfight involving biplanes, a scene that he would be able to fully flush out in the third Indiana Jones film. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was released in theaters on May 23, 1984. If adventure has a name... It must be Indiana Jones. This is serious! From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Indiana Jones. And the Temple of Doom. You don't believe me. Will, Dr. Jones. Made on a budget of $28.2 million, roughly about $9 million more than the original cost, the film took in $333 million worldwide. Now, critics were quite mixed this time around when it came to reviews of Temple of the Doom, with Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael both giving near-perfect marks for the film. Now, that's interesting because Pauline Kael was not a fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, other film critics, such as Ralph Novak of People, complained... Quote, the ads that say this film may be too intense for younger children are fraudulent. No parent should allow a young child to see this traumatizing movie. It would be a cinematic form of child abuse. Even Harrison Ford is required to slap Quan and abuse Capshaw. There are no heroes connected with the film. There are only two villains. Their names are Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. So let's talk a little bit about what Ralph Novak said. Now remember, this film was released in May of 1984, and like I talked about at the beginning of the episode, the rating system was G, P, G, R, and X. There was really no middle ground for the rating system. If something was either a hard R-rated film meant that those older than 17 were able to attend, or it was rated G or PG, basically meaning that a film was acceptable to all audiences. Again, there was no middle ground. So when Temple of Doom was released, naturally, parents brought their children to see the latest film by the man who had made E.T. This created a massive controversy at the time. Now, children's advocate groups protested the movie, claiming that no child should be brought to see this film. Thousands of letters poured into the Motion Picture Association of America, demanding that they give Temple of Doom an R rating. Now, things only compounded more one month later when the Steven Spielberg-produced film Gremlins was released, also with a PG rating. Also, a film that parents and children's advocates groups protested. Now, Spielberg was the main target of these protests, with many parents citing Poltergeist as another Steven Spielberg-produced film rated PG that deserved an R rating. Now, Spielberg met with Jack Valenti, then president of the Motion Picture Association of Americans, several times, and a compromise was presented. Here's an excerpt from an article written in a June 1984 issue of Time magazine. Quote, Last week, the Motion Picture Association of America seemed close to making perhaps the most sweeping change in the rating system since it was established 16 years ago. Now, 16 years ago back then would have meant 1968. That is when the rating system as we know it was first introduced. Getting back to what it says here, quote, Ready for unveiling is a new rating 
known as PG-13, that would prohibit children under 13 from being admitted unless accompanied by a parent or an adult guardian. The rating would presumably be used in future movies like Indiana Jones that are deemed acceptable for teenagers, but potentially harmful for younger children. The PG-13 proposal has been endorsed by a number of studio chiefs and theater owners, and by the chairman of the MPA rating board. Even Spielberg, confessing in a TV interview that there were parts of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that he would not want a 10-year-old to see, advocated the creation of the new rating. The proposed change, however, has been opposed by MPAA President Jack Valenti. He argues that the current system is working well enough and that adding more classifications would cause more confusion. Valente said, quote, Who is smart enough to say what is permissible for a 13-year-old and not for a 12-year-old? End quote. The new rating didn't keep parents from bringing young kids, but many parents got mad when they brought children to another violent movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Critics said the PG rating for that movie didn't warn parents enough. Until the controversy, there were four ratings. G means no sex or violence at all. PG means parents might object to some scenes. R requires kids under 17 to come with an adult, and X is usually reserved for hardcore pornography. Now there's also PG-13, which doesn't keep anybody out, but it tells parents to watch out. Watch out for scenes like the bloodbath opening of Red Dawn, which is about a communist takeover of Colorado. The victims here are high school kids. If the child has to see it, the parent should go with them. If the parent can't go with them and they think it may be all right, they should still take the guidance seriously and discuss the movie with the child afterward and not let the child say, oh, it didn't bother me a bit, and then uh, dream about it at night. That kind of attention is precisely the spirit of the new PG-13 rating. So I found it very interesting that Jack Valenti actually opposed the new rating system, given that he was the person who created the rating system as we know it. And if you think about it, Valenti might have been on to something. That was 33 years ago. And to this day, questions are always come up as to why certain movies are rated PG-13 while other ones are rated R. Side note. The MPAA is notoriously secretive about the process they use to classify a film with a particular rating. However, Jack Valenti's objections to the new rating system fell on deaf ears. And in August of 1984, the first PG-13 rated film was released in theaters. That film, in case you were wondering, Red Dawn. Now, of course, this wasn't the only controversy that surrounded Temple of Doom. I mean, the majority of the movie takes place in India. Now, even though they weren't given permission to film in India, make no mistake about it, the movie is set in India. Through a series of miniatures and matte paintings, Sri Lanka turned into India. Temple of Doom was banned in India for a period of time. The Indian government was outraged by the depiction of Indian culture. They took extreme exception to what they claimed was gross stereotypes of their culture. For example, the infamous dining scene where the locals feast on baby snakes, eyeballs, and chilled monkey brains. The Indian government released a press statement stating that none of the aforementioned animals were part of traditional Indian cuisine. If you think of those movies from the 30s and Republic serials from the 30s, you know, they take themselves a little bit more serious. But at the same time, there's all these sort of Abbott and Costello movies and kind of Laurel and Hardy and sort of The Thin Man. There's all these kind of movies that are sort of upbeat, which is what we wanted to infuse in Raiders, in which I had done in Star Wars. And so there's this kind of goofy 30s humor going on through the whole thing. Ah, oh, sneak surprise. What's the surprise? 
and I think that scene at the dinner table does sort of capture that spirit. I mean, we did have a lot of fun discussing it because it was, oh, let's sit around just thinking the most horrible things you could think of, but it's done very tongue-in-cheek. I mean, that was something that I'd always want to put in a movie. And Steve sort of has a sense of humor that fits right into that. He loves practical jokes on people. And I know he used to do a lot of that with his sisters. He used to, you know, throw spiders at him and things like that that all boys do. But he really still loves to, you know, make creepy crawly things and have everybody go, oh, my God. I, I said, what about a meal of the worst stuff you would never imagine eating as long as you would live? You know, like eating eels and eating bugs and eating brains from monkeys. I think in a way, by doing a kind of dark version of the Indiana Jones series, it gave permission to poke some fun at ourselves and have a scene that was really, you know, toward gross-out comedy. So we had rubber bugs with, you know, don't worry, when you watch the movie, inside of bugs is custard. And inside the monkey brains was custard with raspberry sauce. Uh, do you have anything simple, like soup? And also inside the soup was just rubber eyes that had these little stick stickums, and you could you, each eye stuck. And Kate was told that she had to really stir the pot to get the eyes to come unglued from the bottom of the pot to flow up to the surface. Now Lawrence Kasdan went on record saying that he thought Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was a horrible movie. He said it was mean. And it was ugly. And if you think about it, I mean, this is Lawrence Kasdan we're talking about. This is the guy, I mean, ultimately, this is the guy that's responsible for Empire Strikes Back. This is the guy who's responsible for creating, no, I won't say creating, but this is the guy who wrote the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this is a guy who walked away from doing the second Indiana Jones film. And after he saw it, he was completely okay with his decision. But even with the controversies I mentioned, that didn't stop Temple of Doom from becoming one of the highest grossing films of 1984. But it did have some scratching their heads, wondering if this was truly the direction that Lucas and Spielberg wanted to take Indiana Jones in future films. Now, for Spielberg's part, he has gone on record saying that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is his least favorite of the four films. And yes, that includes Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Spielberg said in an interview, quote, I wasn't happy with Temple of Doom at all. It was too dark, too subterranean, and much too horrific. I thought it out polter poltergeist. There's not one ounce of my own personal feeling in Temple of Doom, end quote. He later added during the making of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom documentary, Temple of Doom is my least favorite of the trilogy. This is obviously done before 2008. I look back and say, well, the greatest thing that I got out of that was I met Kate Capshaw. We married years later, and that to me was the reason why I was fated to make Temple of Doom, end quote. Now on the next episode, we'll take a look at what Spielberg and Lucas did with the rest of the 1980s. You see, it would be almost six years before we get another Indiana Jones film, and there's a lot to fill in in that period of time, Ewok movies. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for your support. <laughs> You know what you really need? You really need a bath.
The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.